Thank you, Aaron, for praying. This is, um, without a doubt, one of my very favorite psalms. I have a deep and powerful personal connection to this psalm. And so it's, uh, it's a real delight to bring the word uh, to this body that I love so much this morning. Um, so let us, uh, let me pray uh, just as we begin. Lord, thank you for the way these words have shaped me, uh, corrected me, challenged me. Um, I pray that you would do the same in all of us this morning. Redirect us, orient our hearts toward you, we pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I was sitting earlier this week uh, in a circle full of people that I really uh, care deeply about. And in the circle was uh, a young woman who uh, is just incredibly bright, uh, very large-hearted, deep compassion for wounded and broken people. And uh, she went to school, uh, got her degree, uh, uh, was preparing for sort of a lifetime of work, and then encountered a very debilitating physical ailment that has, in many ways, kind of derailed her. Um, She stayed on the path uh, to continued service, but um, the ailment actually keeps her her pretty locked down. Um, It it greatly inhibits her, her motion, her ability to move about. Um, she, gets, she gets very tired um, in the middle of the day. Uh, she has some profound pain that she deals with. And so she was in this circle, and then there were also some other people in this circle who, had, um, who I know to have powerful gifts of encouragement. Um, they're the kind of people that you really look to um, over the course of your life. They've, they've encouraged me profoundly at different points in my life. And as we were all sitting together, um, this, the young woman was sort of sharing where she was. And uh, a couple of the encouragers started to try to encourage her and give her some hope. But as I was watching her response to these words of encouragement and hope, I saw the bottom of her eyelids start to fill up with tears. And immediately I realized in the midst of the conversation that hope for this young woman at this stage was a very painful thing to try to embrace. Um, And so I remember at that point thinking and drawing upon the words of the Psalms. Because as we've learned this summer, right, the psalmists give us the words to pray in these deeply complex times in our own personal lives, in our deeply complex times in the life of our city where we continue to see profound injustice, profound pain and despair week after week week. And in the midst of the conversation, I just pulled up the words of the psalmist. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And the words of the psalmist, not my words, but the words of the psalmist in that situation were like apples of gold and settings of silver. They They were the right words, not because they were my words, but because they were the words of the psalmist. The psalmist, as we've learned this summer, give us the words in these profoundly complex situations. When our hearts cry out for justice, when our hearts cry out for what is right, and we see the incredibly large gap between what is right and good and just and where we actually live. 
the psalmists don't just give us the words to say in those moments. The psalmists also offer us a new orientation of heart in the midst of this. The psalmist, if we listen to them and if we'll pray alongside them, will give us the words to say, but it'll also keep, um, in the midst of these profoundly complex times, it'll keep our hearts pointed in the right direction. Moving forward in faith, even when it doesn't feel like we're really moving forward in faith, when it feels like we might be moving backwards. It's this gift of orientation that we find this gift of profound orientation, reorientation that we find here in Psalm 131. And uh, I want to encourage us this morning, because of the brevity of it, let's slow down a little bit. Let's not rush through it. Let's really listen to it this morning. Really hearken to the words of the psalmist. I uh, remember a time, I guess it's probably been about 15 years ago now, when I was... uh, sort of new to the job that I had at, at the university, and I was really trying to prove myself, and I wanted everything to always be perfect around me. I don't know if anybody else identifies with that. I never wanted to make any mistakes, and because of that, um, I, I was always sort of driven to make sure every, you know, every little thing was checked off. And I remember uh, I had a service that I was planning, and it had a significant hole in it. I needed somebody to do something in the service. And um, I was working at a Christian college, a Christian university at the time, and I, and I remembered, you know, I, the perfect person to do this thing that I need in this service is my favorite Old Testament professor. Uh, his name was Willem van Gemmeren. And Dr. van Gemmeren was a Dutch Old Testament professor, and he, he taught me how to inhabit the world of the prophets. I can't explain it to you, but after I, I was in Dr. van Gemmeren's prophets class, and for about the first five sessions of the class, I had no idea what he was talking about at all. And then all of a sudden, something clicked. And all of a sudden, I was seeing the world the way the prophets saw the world as a result of Dr. Van Gemmeren's teaching. And he had this, this powerful way of saying just the right thing in, in just the right moment. And I remember rushing into his office, and I said, Dr. Van Gemmeren, I've got this thing I need you to do, and I need you to just really focus. Can you just help me out right now? And he, and he turned around really slowly in his chair, way too slowly for a guy who was as, er, was as anxious as I was. He turned around in his chair, and he, and he looked at me, and he said, David, David, faith, not frenzy. I was so irritated. <laughs> because I thought frenzy was the answer. Frenzy is definitely the answer in this situation. Faith is not the answer in this situation. Frenzy is where it's at right now. But what he was trying to get across to me, um, isn't, that, isn't that incredible? Three words, and I'm talking about them 15 years later. What he was trying to get across to me was this. David, do you think the most important thing right now is checking that next item off of your list? But I'm telling you that the most important thing you can do right now is to stop and look at what's driving you. What's driving you? What's behind all of this faith? What's the state of your heart and your soul? That's what the writer of Psalm 131 is asking us this morning. 
as he holds up the state of his own heart and soul and as, as an example that can, if we'll listen to it, redirect and correct us. You'll notice at the very beginning of this psalm, there's a superscription, uh, a song of ascents of David. And the songs of ascent, there's lots and lots of disagreement among scholars exactly about what the function of the songs of ascent were, this little collection of psalms within the Psalter. But uh, the best idea out there, and I, th I think probably the most, the, the most likely solution is that, is that these songs were a collection of songs that, that as the people of God would go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the great festivals, these were the collection, this was the collection of songs that they would sing together as they were pr processing on their way to Jerusalem. Almost everyone that went to Jerusalem had to go up. And so they were working and on pilgrimage to get everything, all their people and all their belongings, uh, up to Jerusalem for the festival. And these were the songs that they would sing as they went up to Jerusalem for the festival. So I, I, as I listen to these psalms, this little collection of psalms, um, I have this idea in my head about how what happens when they get to Psalm 131, and this is completely extra biblical, so you can totally ignore this part if you want, but this is the way I imagine this going, that they're singing and walking and singing and walking and singing and walking, and all of a sudden they get to the part where Psalm 131 is sung, and I just get the sense that, and maybe this is just the most appropriate thing to do, is that they should all stop moving at this point. And maybe the best tenor or the best baritone in the bunch should go step up on a rock somewhere and everybody should drop all the heavy stuff they're carrying and turn and look at him as he sings out these words. Stopping and listening to these words. Stopping in the midst of all of their frenzy and motion and listen to these words. These words have the power to stop us in our track, but they're not like a red light or, you know, a red flashing thing, you know, on a website that keeps you from making a mistake, some warning window on a website. I mean, these are not flashy words. They're, they're very different. They stop us in a very different way than we're used to being stopped. The reason I think this psalm is so powerful is that it isn't like all the other things that stop us. It's arresting for us because it's so simple and so brief and so beautiful. It's like running down the street because you're late to a doctor's appointment. And all of a sudden, you find yourself stopped in the middle of the sidewalk, not because there's a don't walk sign or because someone's in your way, but because there's the smell of some bread baking coming out from under the bakery door. And it's so beautiful, the smell is so powerful that you just can't help but stop. Or it's like you're running down the bedroom, the hall at night. And um, you're not running because you're late anywhere. You're running because you're get, trying to get everything done before bed. And you run past the baby's room and you don't stop because they're crying because something's wrong. You stop because out of the corner of your eye, you get a glimpse of the baby sleeping in the crib. And the peacefulness and the beauty of a child sleeping is just so much that you can't stop but go in and look. That's how this psalm stops us. It stops us with its beauty. 
and with its simplicity. In this psalm, we hear the simple song of contentment. (laughs) We hear the song of a soul who trusts. And frankly, that kind of song is so unusual in our world today that we almost don't know what to do with it. I think if we stop and if we let it, if we listen to it, it might unwind us a little this morning from our wound upness. It might unseat our unsettledness. It might help us to follow the sweet song of contentment off the path of envy and onto the path of faith and the path of trust. So let's unpack some of the images here as we listen to the words of the psalmist. The very first, the, very, the opening line is, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. The psalmist says, what I want you to first notice about me is the state of my heart. It's important to know that in, in biblical understanding, the heart is the center of the will and the, and the motivations. The heart is the place out of which all of our actions and thoughts and feelings spring. It's the center of everything. And the psalmist says, I want you to notice the state of my heart. And the most important thing that you'll notice this morning about the state of my heart is that it's not lifted up. It's not proud. It's not lifted up. What is a person on the path, what does the heart of a person on the path of trust look like? What does a well-oriented heart look like? In my, what, it, what it looks like is this, is that in my own estimation of myself, when I think of myself, I am neither smaller nor larger than I actually am. This is what pride is. This is what a lifted up heart is. A lifted up heart comes from someone trying through whatever means necessary to be larger than they actually are. Think of the Tower of Babel here where all of the people came together and they said, we're not very tall, but we can build a tower and we'll be taller. We're not very smart, but we'll get together and we'll be smarter. We can't see very far, but if we get together, we can see further. It sprang. All of the pride of the Tower of Babel sprang from people who were wanting to be larger than they actually were. There's this powerful story. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, Jaber Crow. It's a novel by Wendell Berry. Uh, but in the book, uh, it's one of my favorite novels. Um, in this novel, um, Wendell Berry, who is an agrarian economist and a bit of a prophet, I think, in our midst as well, um, he holds up sort of two different visions of the way human beings approach farming and approach the land. He holds up one vision where people are sort of disposed to to care for it and and they work for it. Um, But then there's another vision where people sort of, as they approach the land and they see the created order, they want to control it and manage it. And in this novel, there are two characters that sort of embody these two different dispositions toward the land. Uh, The first character is an old farmer named A.C. Keith, 
And Athi has for his whole life farmed the same plot of land. And this land has cared for his family and he has cared for it. And Athi, Athi has a beautiful daughter and she falls in love with a beautiful, uh, with a handsome bully of a guy who is a braggart and who is incredibly obnoxious. And so it doesn't take long before you realize that this, this beautiful farm that, that Athi has been caring for his whole life is going to be handed off to this young, unwise, ambitious, braggart bully of a man. And it just makes you grieve inside when you see these two dispositions in action. Let me, let me read you the description of, of these two guys. Wendell writes, Athey was not exactly or not only what is called a landowner. He was the farm's farmer, but also its creature and belonging. He lived its life, and it lived his. And he knew that of the two lives, his was meant to be the smaller and the shorter. Of all of this, Troy, the young man, had no idea, not a suspicion. He thought the farm existed to serve and enlarge him. And it seemed that this was the way that it was going to be. The proud heart sees the largeness of the world and everything in it. And it gets tricked into thinking that it, if it can be smart enough, ambitious enough, sneaky enough, powerful enough, it can use the world. It can use the world and all of the people that it encounters to make itself bigger. There are two fundamentally different ways of seeing the world, church. One sees the world as something to be used to make myself bigger, and the other is, reflects the divine mandate to steward the creation knowing that the story of the creation, the story of the created world is longer than your own personal story. It's the story of the heart that's lifted up and the heart that is appropriate size. We can either use the dominion that God gave us at creation to serve him and serve the world, or we can try to use it to serve, our, serve and enlarge ourselves. The psalmist knows that at the end of all things, at the end of at the end of our lives, we will be no larger than the bed we die in. And if we want to live in contentment, we will remind ourselves of that every day. Stillness and quietness of soul are only available to those who understand how small they are, to those whose thoughts of themselves are appropriately sized. Think of Mother Teresa here, who was known for her commitment and, and the saying, we can do no great things. Think of all the great things she did. But she said, we can do no great things. We can only do small things with great love. That's a heart that's appropriately sized. This is a person who understands this. Go to the next line. The psalmist says, my eyes are not raised too high. In effect here, the psalmist is saying, 
You can tell my heart is not proud by looking at my eyes. They're not haughty. They're not higher than yours. I think what the psalmist is getting to here is that because the heart is so powerful in the way that it drives us, the things that spring out of it impact our bodies. And you can tell by looking at a person and the way that their eyes are oriented, the state of their heart. Have you guys ever experienced this when you're standing, you're at a, you're at a party? I, I hate cocktail parties. Like, this is my least favorite setting in the whole world. Um, but, you know, you're standing there and you're talking to somebody, and the whole time you're talking to them, they're like scanning the room for someone more important or maybe better that might offer them more when they're talking to you. Like, nothing drives me cra- more crazy than that. I mean, these are eyes, you know, that are lifted up, eyes that are raised high. These are eyes that spring out of the proud heart that says, I can take care of myself. And they look down with disdain upon anyone who doesn't have that same level of confidence. I remember reading a story several years ago. I wish I'd clipped it because it's such an incredible story about what this looks like. I think it was David Bowie. But Bowie, I I believe it was Bowie, this rock star sitting in a restaurant. And somebody had asked him, have you ever met this other rock star? And, And he said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, really, in all your time as a rock star, you've never met this other rock star? And he said, well, actually, we were in a restaurant at the same time at one point, and we were sitting really close to each other. But I didn't want to get up and go over to him, and he didn't want to get up and come over to me because they were both so full of their rock starness. <laughs> this is, these are eyes that are lifted too high. Too high. You know, eyes can be too high, but they can also be too low, right? Some people have a problem of eyes too high, and some people have a challenge of eyes too low, where they're weighted down and burdened with shame, weighed down and burdened by the memories of some of their own mistakes, weighed down and burdened by a sense that they'll never, ever be enough. But what the psalmist commends to us this morning is that God wants not our eyes to not be too high or too low, but fixed straight on him, looking straight ahead into him, straight ahead into his eyes. To those whose eyes are high, he says, I resist the proud. To those whose eyes are cast down with shame and despair, he takes their hand, one of the most beautiful images in scripture, he takes his hand and lifts them up and brings their eyes to meet him and says, I am your glory. I am the lifter of your head. Can you think this morning of a more beautiful name for God than the lifter of your head? Let's keep going. The psalmist says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Interesting thing here is that the psalmist doesn't say, I don't occupy myself with things that are great or things that are marvelous. He says, I don't occupy myself with things that are too great or too marvelous, right? This is the difference between ambition and aspiration because a person who is ambitious and thinks they can do everything, whose eyes are 
uh, whose eyes are haughty and whose heart is lifted up, looks at things that are way beyond the scope of their own ability and says, I'm going to invest in that. I'm going to do that. This is such a part of what it means to be an American that it's hard for us to even consider that that might be a bad thing. We hold up in high regard people who look at unbelievable, insurmountable challenges and who stare them down. That's the hero in our culture. But the psalmist here says that the contented heart is one that doesn't preoccupy themselves with things that are beyond the scope of their own abilities. The contented heart knows their own limitations, knows what they can do, and knows what they can't. And they welcome those limits. They embrace those limits. The welcome heart is not filled with ambition, but it might be filled with aspiration. The, well, the, the heart that is contented might sit and reflect all day upon things that are wonderful or things that are glorious or marvelous, but won't waste its time with things that are too great or too it knows its own limitations and it accepts them. Let's go on to the next line. And this is the best. It's just the best here. The psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I've calmed and quieted my soul. I love this line because it lets us know that the psalmist's soul did not start off calm and quiet, right? We didn't, we're not dealing with Jack Johnson or Jimmy Buffett here. Like, you know, I mean, it didn't start there. It started in a different place. And the psalmist said, I have, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Now, what image is the psalmist going to put out? Because the soul is really this part of us that encompasses and organizes the whole person. Dallas's definition, Dallas Willard's definition is, it organizes the whole person, interrelates all other dimensions of the self so that they form one person. That's what our soul is. If you think about it, the soul is almost like the boardroom of a person. It's the executive center where all the decisions are made. So if we think about what would a good boardroom, a good executive center look like inside of a person, we might think, well, it would be incredibly efficient, right? Very effective, no waste at all. It'd be very aligned to purpose and values and mission and goals, right? This is how we should strive for our executive center to be. That's what it looks like. You walk in, there's stickies and all kinds of charts on the wall reminding us of the things that we should stay focused on, orient ourselves around those things. No, the psalmist says, ah, the well-ordered soul looks like a weaned child. What the heck does that mean? Looks like a weaned child. Now I'll admit, uh, I actually sat with this image for almost a year before I started understanding it. It was one of those things that just kind of haunted me. I'm like, I, I really want to understand this. And it wasn't until I actually had a kid and watched them go through this process that I started to get it. Um, you got to remember that for a weaned child, the mom's minute-by-minute -minute schedule is no longer determined by the child's hunger, right? The world no longer spins around the immediate urgent fears and needs of the child. 
you guys know this. Anybody who's been around a newborn, an unweaned child, knows that when the child is hungry, everything stops. Everything stops. This, this is not the important part. What's important in this picture is why a weaned child is so different from an unweaned child. Why are they so different? And in order to think about this, we've got to get inside the kid's head for a minute, all right, as, as much as we possibly can. Um, we'll do the little prince thing, and we won't forget what it was like. To, we'll try to remember what it was like to be a child. We'll get inside the kid's head for a minute. Now, you've got to think about it. This kid's born, comes out, and all of a sudden it starts to be overwhelmed by these feelings that something is wrong. Every sort of physical signal inside the baby's body is going off telling him something is wrong. This hurts. It's uncomfortable. I need something, right? And so instantly they start to freak out. Right? Because they've got this feeling. And, and can you imagine what it would be like to have this feeling and be brand new in the world? And you don't know if this feeling's ever going to go away. Like in your little brain, you're thinking, maybe this is my lot in my life. The next 80 years is I'm going to feel like this. And you start to freak out because you can't imagine living with this gnawing pain of what you later will call hunger right now. But every time you start to cry out, this lady comes, or this guy comes with a bottle, um, we won't get too graphic here. Uh, and, and every time that you, that you do this and you cry, like something happens. Everybody starts to move and everybody starts to warm stuff up or, you know, just, you know, do everything they can to make it stop, right? And you're like, oh, oh, okay. Okay, it's better. But then, like two hours later, it's back again. Is she going to come? And every time you have this feeling, you wonder, is this the time the lady doesn't come to do the things she does to make this hunger go away? Is this it? Am I, is this the time I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life, this deep, gnawing pain and hunger? What if it never stops? I can't stand these feelings. A wean child has internalized that mom or whoever it is that feeds me is dependable. That when I get hungry, I don't have to be scared anymore because... Whoever it is that feeds me is dependable and trustworthy. A wean child is a child that is no longer driven by its immediate craving or by its fear of abandonment. A wean child knows that the caretaker is dependable. I want to ask you this morning, in the catalog of your week, how much of your week, how much of our week is driven by our immediate cravings or by our fear of abandonment? The psalmist says, a contented soul at rest is one that is no longer driven like that. It knows that the one who tends to my soul is dependable, will always be there. So in the moment, I don't have to freak out. This discomfort will not last forever. The one who cares for me will come and tend to me. Been reading of late uh, Henry Nouwen's Life of the Beloved. You know, this is the story, Nouwen tells the story of um, befriending this secular uh, newspaper writer. And the newspaper 
the writer encourages him, would you please write about your perspective of faith for people like me? And the very first thing that Henry, in his wisdom, knows that this guy needs to know if you're really going to pursue faith is you need to know that you are the beloved. At the core of what it looks like to be a Christian is to know that you are the beloved and that you are cared for. He says, becoming the beloved means letting the truth of our belovedness become enfleshed in everything we think, say, or do. It entails a long and painful process of appropriation, or better, incarnation. As long as being the beloved is little more than a beautiful thought or a lofty idea that hangs above my life to keep me from becoming depressed, nothing really changes. What is required is to become the beloved in the common places of my daily existence and bit by bit to close the gap that exists between what I know myself to be and the countless specific realities of everyday life. <laughs> Becoming the beloved is pulling the truth revealed to me from above down into the ordinariness of what I am. In fact, thinking of, talking about, and doing from hour to hour. The psalmist says, the soul that is at rest knows at the core of its being, through all of its actions every day, that it is beloved and cared for. Will never be abandoned. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The psalmist ends this encouragement by calling the people to Israel. Put your hope in the Lord. Don't hope in your own abilities or in the size of your own dreams. Don't put your hope in your own ambitions, in your own ability to solve massive problems. Don't put your, home, your hope in your own ability to satisfy your cravings or do all the things that make you feel like you won't ever be abandoned. No, this morning, the psalmist says, follow my example put your hope in the one who will never leave you or forsake you, who will never abandon you, who watches over you hour by hour as you go on pilgrimage toward the great city. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.